This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 3rd, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. How states and the feds regulate alcohol may be outdated, but at least in a few cases, it's downright incoherent. Jim Caruso is CEO of Flying Dog Brewery. He's witnessed both the mundane and extraordinary in the world of alcohol regulation. You run Flying Dog Brewery, and you produce a beer called Raging Bitch, which has art from the great Ralph Steadman, most closely associated with uh, Louisville's own Hunter S. Thompson. And what's wrong with that? Or what did Michigan say was wrong with that? Michigan banned the sale of that beer in the state. Um, The reason was that it was detrimental to the health, safety, or welfare of the general public. In their mind, the, just the passive observance of this inanimate label, uh, the name, the Ralph Steadman artwork, along with the Ralph Steadman copy, Ralph actually wrote some copy for this label, uh, in their minds had the ability to just incite violence uh, among the people who looked at this label, and in their minds that would cause a, pose a danger to society. I'm, I'm, re- I'm thinking of the parallels in the 1980s uh, when Tipper Gore was going before Congress talking about lyrics on uh, albums of Two Live Crew, among others. And I can remember Frank Zappa appearing on Crossfire repeatedly saying, it's just words. And that seems to be, you know, in the case here, it's, it's just words. So what, what uh, powers is this agency, was this agency given to say, no, you can't, you can't do this? Well, the powers are significant. Uh, They have police power. So selling a beer in the state without their approval would result in the state police being called out to confiscate the beer. And the CEO of the brewery could be charged with a felony. So those are uh, rather severe uh, consequences of not getting their approval. So what were the arguments made? They, I mean, you, you said the health, welfare, and safety of the general public, but let's let's drill down a little bit. Certainly the word bitch, uh, you know, it used in certain contexts is a perfectly reasonable word to use, but in other contexts is offensive to some people. What were, what were, drill down a little bit on what that meant. Well, this was a beer label. It's meant to be humorous. Um, the artwork relates to a uh, concept, we, we have a raging yeast, uh, it's El Diablo yeast, which is a dog. Um, so they didn't have any particular problems with our intent behind it. They just felt that this word in public was a, uh, a gender-specific insult and therefore not acceptable. They, um, I don't think they gave too much thought about the constitutionality. Uh, one of the references was to Oprah. Oprah doesn't like the word on her show. Doesn't this, allow this to was used it. as a defense against uh, a defense for prohibiting your product. It was used as one of the reasons. Uh, it's not even one of the words that George Carlin included in his seven words in 1972. Uh, another reason was that the Westminster Kennel Club no longer uses that word in reference to their dogs. Uh, therefore. They felt that it was okay to censor flying dogs' use of it in Michigan. Um, Another defense was children might see this. Uh, It could be displayed in supermarkets somewhere where a a child might see it. Of course, that argument comes down to these words are all over the place. This one grain of sand argument, you pull this one grain of sand out, it doesn't really change the overwhelming use of these words in society. What was the uh, 
the final analysis on this uh, this board? Well, the final analysis was that they, they banned the sale. We, we appealed that. Um, in Michigan, an appeal has a different meeting with the Liquor Commission. Your appeal is to the same commissioners who denied it originally. They affirmed their uh, original decision. We filed suit in the Western District Federal Court um, alleging that the liquor commissioners violated our First Amendment right to freedom of expression and our 14th Amendment right to due process. The court uh, ruled in favor of the liquor commissioners, uh, extending to them the quasi-judicial and qualified immunity. Basically, the court said, even if the liquor commissioners violated your First Amendment right to freedom of expression, they're protected against being sued for committing that crime because they weren't, in effect, uh, officers of the court. So the federal federal district court said their decision is fine with us as a constitutional matter, and even if they did violate your rights, you have no recourse. They didn't actually rule on the constitutionality. Did the liquor commissioners violate our First Amendment rights? I see. Uh, we appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals, Sixth uh, Circuit, and they ruled in our favor. They ruled that the Liquor commissioners did not meet the test for quasi-judicial or qualified immunity. The minority opinion went so far as to say that this is a clear violation of the First Amendment right to freedom of expression, that the government does not have the power. The First Amendment basically means the government does not have the power to restrict expression of a message because they don't care for the content or the subject matter or the message in it. Uh, this is common uh, in alcohol, uh, advertising for alcohol. It is uh, common, more common in expressions of commercial speech. That is, you're communicating with people that you hope to be your customers. And uh, why do you think that gets less protection than uh, other, like literature or something like that? Well, that's interesting. When it comes to alcohol, I, there's been a tendency, uh, 21st Amendment repealed prohibition, uh, gave states the right to regulate the distribution of alcohol in their states. And in many instances across the country, there's been a tendency to think that no other constitutional freedom applies. We have the absolute ability to regulate alcohol. And it's been a, a regular problem. In fact, Michigan was a repeat offender in this regard with the First Amendment and other beers that they rejected uh, because of similar words. Uh, commercial free speech, I think, even in my lifetime, has evolved a lot. Uh, you know, it went from, well, that's not really protected by the First Amendment, to it certainly is, with, with some exceptions. You can't say misleading things, uh, can't concern illegal activity and so forth, can't make you know, untruthful statements about health benefits. But other than that, I think the, over the last several decades, the First Amendment applies to commercial speech almost equally to how it applies to non-commercial speech. In Virginia, where I live, um, happy hours, at least, I don't know if this is still the case, but a few years ago, happy hours could not be advertised outside of your establishment. That is to say, you couldn't advertise drink specials. You couldn't say, come on in and enjoy you know, two for one, this or that. Uh, you, you couldn't entice people with the promise of alcohol, essentially. You could say, come have a good time. Uh, you could do that sort of thing. But that seems to me the very similar uh, example, and uh, as far as I know, unchallenged. 
Uh, it is still the case today. We do business in Virginia. That is still the case. That uh, that message is restricted. Uh, you don't. You can't uh, induce people to drink. I think it's part of the the, the old temperance uh, mentality. So, in, in their view, then, uh, and I guess this this perhaps is the regulator's view generally, which is: look, I have this job to do. I don't need to concern myself with the rights, uh, the communication rights, the First Amendment protected rights of these mere people who deal in commerce. Sure, that that probably is is their mentality. But the when you come to the First Amendment, that restriction of that message, whether it's from again flying dog to its consumers or a political message, in the case of Citizens United, the government simply does not have the right to block that message or restrict that expression just because they find it disagreeable or there are some potential conflicts. Uh, in their mind with uh, whatever their political correctness is or values that they're looking at. So what have you learned in this process of of having a beer essentially removed from the market based upon, you know, metadata <laughs> on the product? Well, I think there are a few. One is that um, when it comes to constitutional freedoms, you don't lose them overnight. They're chipped away at bit by bit. And this is important, certainly at the federal level, to reestablish that the First Amendment applies to products, services, whatever the message might be. Second, the, you know, they came at it from the political correctness standpoint. Mr. Crusoe, this is not about the First Amendment. You know, this is simply uh, an inappropriate word to use, which is too often just a side door to censorship. And for us, it's been a great opportunity to have a lot more conversations about the role of political correctness in society and with regard to freedom of speech. What have your fellow producers, the people that you, I assume, run around with when it comes to uh, as beer producers, what have they taken away from your experience? Well, I've received a lot of pats on the back from brewers, distillers, and uh, vintners, wineries across the country. But it's, it's a, I think, an appreciation that you could stand up for a principle, and that's still consistent with your business. And uh, it's a bit of a bold move to sue your regulator, even though Michigan is not our home state. There's a reputation there, and you kind of worry about that. But it's uh, this is an onerous regulation and an onerous approach by liquor commissions that most every brewery and distillery has experienced across the country. So this is a good pushback and a good reminder uh, to all liquor commissions that freedom of speech applies to a business owner, a brewery or distillery communicating its message to its potential consumers. Shifting gears just a little bit, what are the unique hurdles that producers of alcohol face when it comes to uh, regulation? It's a long process. So there is the uh, Tax Trade Bureau uh, approval that you need from the federal government. You submit a label for approval. Uh, technically, I guess it's in the regulations more than technically, they can reject a label for it being obscene. I'm, I'm not aware of any cases like that at the federal level. It's about an 11-month process from the time you decide you want to produce a beer and sell it and get label approval. From there, it is submitted to all 50 states, and all 50 states have different regulations. I have a full-time compliance person. It's expensive. It's time-consuming. Uh, you have to know the ins and outs. In Texas, beer and ale are two different products, depending on the alcohol content, et cetera, et cetera. The, uh, after that, it's a uh, matter of getting the 
uh, graphics done, getting to getting the getting them to the printers. So this 11-month process adds a lot of time and cost to the production of, of any new beer, any new spirit. Years ago, I believe it was the Surgeon General made an argument that we shouldn't be including nutrition information on beer. And I think his argument was, we don't want people to think of beer as food. And I thought that was really odd because they, they in, in every other instance where you're putting something into your body that is uh, labeled for sale and legal to sell in, in the United States, that kind of information is required. Uh, but for beer or alcohol products, it was at the time forbidden. And I thought, well, isn't there a middle ground here where the stuff's <laughs> neither required nor nor forbidden? Is that is that still the case with respect to alcohol, being where the government says, ah, don't treat this like food? That's changed a bit recently. So back in the day, uh, well, for beer, it's true. There is no known pathogen that could exist in beer. It's low pH, alcohol, hops were, you know, uh, an antiseptic and so forth. So it was the case that beer, even if it didn't taste good, wouldn't hurt you. Uh, the FDA, FDA now oversees breweries. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with uh, homeland security and what's going into the food chain. So we have had uh, several inspections and long interviews in terms of who you are running this brewery and so forth. Uh, so that has changed a bit. The regulatory uh, process at the federal and state government, uh, is, are there some big changes that uh, producers of alcohol would like to see that in terms of these vestiges of of uh, post-prohibition, because I, I, I mean, I'm from Kentucky, and you can buy liquor in uh, drugstores. And I'm told that the reason you can buy liquor in drugstores is because uh, drugstores sold patent medicine or sold medicines that contained a great deal of alcohol, and they didn't want to give that up mm -hmm. at the end of prohibition. The days after Prohibition were very different. You had very few breweries. They were very large breweries. You had this three-tier system. And a lot of the uh, laws you mentioned, it's the, the old bootleggers and Baptists, right? The closing on Sunday, the, the beer stores were for that because it gave them a day off. Figuring get the same amount of sales in six days, why spread that over seven days? So, yeah, I think it's changing. I think the from a free market standpoint, you'd like to do what's in the consumer's best interest. Uh, you have a lot of uh, differences in states. Uh, Virginia, you have chain stores. Maryland, you don't. It's all independent stores. And you look at that, and it could be very disruptive. When you have independent stores, you have more selection. You might be paying a higher price, less convenience. The chain states, you have more convenience, lower price, less selection. So those are more qualitative value judgments as opposed to ease of operation and how do we get this through the system. What are the unique taxes that uh, alcohol producers pay? Alcohol producers pay excise taxes, which we pay our state tax, our federal tax, city tax in many cases, and then we pay federal and state excise taxes, which can be significant. Uh, they're significant at the federal level. They're progressive. The more you produce, you go into a higher tax category. State taxes uh, vary across the board, um, depending on that particular environment. A pint of beer, 40% or so of what you're paying goes to tax. So it's, it's a high tax business. When you talk to regulators, 
many have kind of forgotten this whole notion. They say, you know, I talk about the extra tax, and they say, oh, the, the sin tax. I said, yes, yes, the, the tax that you can put on a product and the consumption doesn't change. You just get the tax revenue. But it does change. It moves people from a high-quality, expensive product to cheap alcohol. When we see recessions hit, and a lot of times it's said that alcohol is recession-proof, Sort of. Uh, they'll trade down from a flying dog beer to a shot of cheap whiskey to get the buzz and then maybe go back to a flying dog beer during tougher times. So it is distortive to the market when you have these various tax incentives and, and price structures in place. What do you see uh, coming down the pike with respect to uh, regulation uh, of alcohol in the coming years? FDA involvement, we had talked about nutritional labeling, and that's being uh, put forth, promoted by the Beer Institute. Uh, the Beer Institute represents the, the biggest brewers, Budweiser, Miller Coors, and so forth. Um, we have a different association for us, small, small business craft brewers, and uh, they are arguing to put nutritional labeling on beers. Uh, I think craft brewers suspect that this is a tactic to use government regulation to impose a uh, a challenge for craft brewers. Craft beer tends to be a little bit higher alcohol, a few more calories, and that by putting that information on the beer, people might migrate uh, more toward the lower calorie mass-produced domestic lagers. Both good products, just different, but it's an example of perhaps attempting to use government regulation to beat up on one of your competitors a bit. Speaking of that, um, there was a, a documentary film called Beer Wars, produced a few years ago, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher the story, and please stop me and correct me if I, if I get this wrong. After Prohibition, as you mentioned earlier, uh, relatively few, very large brewers. Uh, fast forward to, and there was a lot of even consolidation in those years. Uh, fast forward to the late 1970s. Uh, home beer brewing is legalized, uh, giving birth to a lot of tinkerers who developed uh, their own methods of making beer and making beer more delicious and uh, having different flavor profiles and that sort of thing. A lot of those guys started businesses, and now there is this sort of, uh, I'll say, uneasy tension between the very, very large producers of beer, Miller. I mean, the the very idea of a company called Miller Coors is is sort of, that's a recent thing, and that's sort of an odd thing. And then these companies, in order to get shelf space in the store and command as much shelf space as possible, will acquire uh, other producers to squeeze out uh, independent producers, or in some cases, produce different quantities of uh, beer that goes into a different size case. Here's the 18 can, here's the 12 bottle, here's the 8-ounce bottle, here's the 12-ounce bottle to, again, command as much of that shelf space as possible. Now, I'm a free market guy, and I love to see uh, robust competition and if the big guy can do it better, but how does the regulatory structure governing alcohol, how does it impact that kind of outcome where you see a, a, a potentially very challenging environment for small producers? Sure. Well, I'm 
as free market, I suppose, as they come, I, other than using government regulation as a, as a weapon <laughs> against your competition, uh, you're, you described it very accurately. So prohibition uh, put most breweries out of business. Uh, I think the low point was 50 breweries in the 70s. And then Jimmy Carter, I think it was H.R. Uh, 1737, legalized home brewing. Craft brewers, the business I'm in, there were eight in 1985. When we started in 1990, there were 290. As of September of 2015, there were more breweries in America than had ever been in America before, something like 4,100. Uh, we just crossed the 5,000 mark uh, a couple of months ago, so tens of thousands of beers out there. Um, it's good for the market in, in this sense, that it's turning more and more people onto craft beer. The pie is getting bigger. I'm not so concerned about what my slice of the pie is, and we've been around for 25 years. It's, if that pie is getting bigger, that's good for the industry. The macro brewers, uh, sales have been declining by Miller Coors for some years, uh, don't know all the reasons for it. One, they suspect, is people are migrating to craft beer. So you have normal market phenomenon. Uh, large brewers acquire some of the craft breweries. They don't have an exit plan. They don't have a secession plan. They're just cashing out. That's all great and fine. The challenge comes in when they produce these beers uh, in mass quantities and price them very aggressively low in the market. It creates that gap between craft beer and the what I'd call the, the craft beer that's now owned by the larger breweries. Where that pricing might be artificially low, uh, I mean, technically, you can't sell a product in, in our industry for less than it costs you to produce. But there's a lot of ways to do the accounting on that. Uh, so that, that creates some challenges. Um, the, there's some other challenges in the market just with these all sound like market challenges. These are all market right? challenges. Yeah. So, so yeah. In, in the in the in the process of state and federal regulation, what's the thing that appears to give those big guys such an advantage? I don't. Uh, I, I can't think of any regulations in particular that. Uh, that what about the, the <laughs> rights of distribution? The, the three tier system. Okay. The, the three tier system was put into place. That, that this means that uh, in our industry, in, in the alcohol industry, you can be a producer, a brewer, or a distiller. You can own the trucks that distribute the beer, or you can have a bar or a liquor store. But you can't be more than one out of the three. You can't be two out of the three. It varies by state. Uh, out west, where I spent a lot of time, it was pretty loose, this three-tier system. Out east, it's very strict. Most of the rum running and crime, and as many of uh, li listeners, I'm sure, know, organized crime was basically created by prohibition. Uh, so out here, out east, that three-tier system to keep the uh, uh, analogy, you know, keep, to keep the next Al Capone from owning the breweries, the trucks that distribute the beer, and the bars, and having it be a tied system, they split that up. But there are many exceptions to this. So, for example, Budweiser, a brewer, is probably the largest distributor in America. They, some states allow a brewer to own a distributorship, uh, or you can own it through different members. It depends. So they are one of the largest distributors. So that three-tier system, which really at the federal level is a two-tier system, but kind of morphs into a three-tier system, tremendously works to our disadvantage. Because if I'm a brewer, and I'm just making the margin on the beer from me to the wholesaler, uh, but Budweiser is making twice that profit. They make the margin as a producer. They mark, make the margin as a distributor. They have a lot more dollars to work with because of regulations that allow them to be a distributorship, and they can be given their size. 
whereas other breweries are not in that business. So it's a, it's that hybrid. Are you a distributor and a brewer, or just a brewer? So uh, distributors then, in in many cases, obviously they're charging breweries to distribute the products. The the distributors buy the product. So uh, so we sell our prices price to wholesaler. We sell in wholesaler quantities. They own that beer. It's generally not returnable. Uh, and there's a mark on it, markup on it from wholesaler to retail. So what value does the distributor deliver? A tremendous value, actually. Uh, we, uh, we were in the self-distribution business. We were allowed to be in Colorado when you're a small brewery. I'll say we failed at it for five years. Tremendous challenges as a distributor. If, if you have this 10-bay truck with drivers on it, uh, if you're not stopping at every account along the way and delivering a lot of product, you're losing money. Uh, so as a small distributor where we had accounts all over town, uh, we were probably losing money on each case that we sold. So the ability to have a distributor who has enough products that they are stopping at every account on the street makes it extremely efficient to get your product to market. So it, I think it serves a tremendous uh, benefit. You know, We have excellent relationship with our wholesaler partners, and I don't think what we do would ever work without that, without that second tier in place. But there is, it is a required interaction. It's a required interaction. Where it breaks down is with something called franchise laws. And when I talk to attorneys who aren't in the franchise law business, they think I'm making this up, that it's unconstitutional. That once a distributor acquires the rights to your brand, uh, Virginia's a particularly challenging state, many are, they have that brand for life. Uh, it's ex- exclusivity, generally, in terms of only they can carry your brand, and to that territory, they can only distribute it there. Our distributors do an excellent job. If, however, you're with a distributor who, for whatever reason, doesn't focus on your product or it's on the shelf, there's almost nothing a small brewery can do to get that brand back. And in some states, even if the distributor decides to sell your brand to somebody else, it's sometimes the case that a distributor is defined as nothing more than somebody with a truck uh, and a couple of uh, dollies to push the beer in. Even if the brewery says, I'll pay that amount or even more, the wholesaler determines who it's sold to. So as you start to look at these franchise laws, you're locked into this system sometimes for life. So the distributor has the right to sell the distribution rights of your product to a third party, and you can't buy it back? Well, it varies by state. So this this is where it gets quite complex. And the laws were written uh, before craft breweries existed. So, so keep in mind that back in the day, you had major breweries who would appoint somebody as a distributorship for the territory, basically making them a millionaire overnight. It was a, it was a great program. Uh, the distributor would build up that brand, invest their life into it, and then the big brewer at times would just take the brand back. So the franchise laws were meant to protect small distributorships from these giant breweries. Now, as I've just explained to you, we have many more small breweries. Now we have small breweries with franchise laws in place that protect big wholesalers <laughs> and you know, to the detriment of small breweries at time. Now, it varies by state. So what I described to you that a wholesaler can sell your brand and sometimes there's nothing you can do about it, that is true in some states. Other states, you have some opportunity to 
buy your brand back from the wholesaler, resell it to somebody else. But it's, it's a patchwork quilt, depending on what the political environment was and the political clout of the brewers and distributors when these laws were put into place. As you know, it can be very difficult to change regulations when you have vested interests in the current scheme of things. Jim Caruso is CEO of Flying Dog Brewery. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.